This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Go ahead. Well, welcome back to the Outdoor Drive Podcast. This is your boy, East Coast Trev, and this is Steve. What is up, Steve? Same old brother. Just, I'm in uh, a, like a, oops, sorry. No, you're good. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm just in a trance, man. I don't even know how to kick this thing off. So I said, I, I'm kind of in recovery mode myself. You know, it, it's a deep one and, you know, it hits home in some matters, but mm-hmm. the story and everything that goes along with it, I mean, you said maybe 15 words the whole show. I think I said five. It's, it's a, it's a horror. Uh, how would you say that? Horrific. Horrific. Yeah. Ordeal. Yeah. It's, it's, he's a hero. I, it's it's how inspiring that he is. He's just an amazing individual who's just kind of gone above and beyond with all the bad things that happen. And obviously he kind of goes through the, the, the things that, you know, he wasn't always a perfect person, you know, like after with a PTSD. I mean, I don't understand. I've never had to go through something like that. I mean, I know you have and stuff, but it's just, I don't know, man. I, I every time I've, I've listened to a handful of podcasts that he's been on and really, you know, learned a lot about Will and, it still just knocks me off my feet every time I hear it. I could hear that story 3,000 times. I think it would be the same jaw-jacking um, experience, honestly. Oh, yeah. I honestly don't have a whole lot to say. No. <laughs> I, I think, I think honestly, that, that I think that we should let him talk and do his thing. I don't think I should talk about it anymore, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, let's say thanks to a couple of people, and uh, let's let the news roll through, and let's just – for sure. Let him do the work. For sure. Uh, before we get too crazy, I just w- one thing I do want to hit on uh, that's very important is is our uh, hunt giveaway with Ducks on the Bay. Uh, if you guys based all of that, <laughs> if you haven't got in on that, you're you're an idiot. I'll say this every single episode until we get rid of it. Um, you're an idiot. It's it's one of the the biggest giveaways I've ever seen on a podcast. Period. Um, you have the chance to go and go see Duck Hunting with Ducks on the Bay and myself um, and kill some eiders and so on and so forth. It's pretty simple to get in on. You just got to buy something from one of our sponsors. It's simple. You can buy a hat from us. You can buy stickers. You can go and buy a sticker pack from Danny from Ducks on the Bay, DucksOnTheBay.com. Um, that actually gets you in on two entries. So every time you buy from us, you get two entries, anything from anybody else. Out on the Limb, Nor'easter Game Calls, Wild Edge Inc., Timber Tumblers, uh, Wicked Twisted Bowstrings, Broadside camo, you get one entry. So get on over to their websites, man. Uh, there is actually 
um, two more um, outdoor series pot calls that have uh, just made been made. Uh, Mark just made those. And then there may or may not be a special series Ridge Runner that may be coming out also. So get on over to NorthEasterGameCalls.com. Uh, go in the left-hand side, hit shop, outdoor drive calls. They're right there. Um, Everybody else, man, you guys know where to find them. You can get on theoutdoordrive.com. All of our sponsors are on the bottom of the page. Uh, click on those. Get on over there. Uh, if you guys need the promo codes, I will put those up on the website also so you have those. And I will put the details for the giveaway on the website also so you guys can see those there. Um, but you guys don't want to miss out on that. It's definitely uh, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for sure. Yeah. So. Told Are you, you man, still lost have, for words, bro? I, I don't, have, just a like, I don't no. have a lot to say. I don't either, man. Um, I guess we just cut right into news for a cruise with Mike. I think let's see what he's got going on. And then uh, let's turn yeah. this key and get this drive underway, right. man, because. Just, just turn that puppy up. Okay, sorry. Everyone, Mike here with some news for your crews. We're going to start this one off in Indiana and some changes for turkey season. Uh, the Natural Resource Commission has granted final approval to rule changes that would allow turkey hunters to use 410 uh, and 28 gauge shotguns in addition to the already legal shotguns. The amendments do include some requirements associated with shot size and density for the additional firearms, such as allowing tungsten super shot number 9 and 10. Uh, this do, this does seem to be an ongoing trend as this is the second state uh, in just a few weeks to approve such changes. So I'm sure we'll see some more coming. If anyone sees anything on other states approving similar stuff, please let me know. Uh, so now on to some national news. And this one's more for all of us who uh, use some sort of digital mapping for hunting like Basemap or Onyx uh, and even for fishing. Uh, the Map Land Act has been proposed in Congress, which calls on federal land management agencies like the Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Forest Service to digitize information for the public. Uh, this is because most of the access easement records are still paper and not electronic uh, for public use. The act would provide federal land management agencies with funding and guidance to create databases of map-based agency records related to recreational access and use. The records would include uh, legal easements and rights away across private land, year-round or seasonal closures of roads and trails, including vehicle-type restrictions, boundaries of areas where special rules or prohibitions apply to hunting and shooting, and areas of public waters that are closed to watercraft or have horsepower restrictions. Uh, the Act does have overwhelming support uh, in the outdoor industry and community. Uh, but it has not been approved yet, so if you can, contact your uh, congressional senators and representatives uh, in support of this, because it'd be great to have uh, easy public access to those records um, to be able to access these lands. So on, this, on the main and some bills that are scheduled uh, for public hearing on April 5th, uh, LD943 is proposing to allow electronic turkey tagging in Maine. And LD-1015, uh, this is probably the bigger one, is aimed at prohibiting hunting with um, ammunition containing lead. Uh, this one would have a big impact on sportsmen in Maine. Um, there are a couple others there, but those are the two most impactful ones. So if you are from Maine or you hunt in Maine or plan on hunting in Maine, 
uh, please reach out to these reps uh, and provide testimony if you can, uh, either for or against the bills. Uh, it'd be a big help to keep those moving in the right direction, uh, especially on the lead prohibition. So off to Missouri, where the Department of Concert of Conservation Commission has approved the state's first ever bear hunt uh, to take place this year from October 18th to the 27th. The 10-day hunt will be exclusive to Missouri residents and will take place in designated zones in the southern half of the state. Uh, hunters can apply for a permit online during the month of May, uh, with participants being selected by July 1st through a random drawing. Hunters will be limited to one bear uh, per permit and will be allowed to fill the tag on private or public land. Um, there will be quotas for each of the three bear management zones, and the season will close after 10 days or once quotas are hit. Uh, hunters will be prohibited from taking sows with cubs or bears known to be in the presence of other bears. Uh, dogs and baiting are also prohibited, and both firearms and archery will be allowed uh, with the exclusion of atlatls. So... Another good opportunity there in Missouri uh, to go punch bear tag. So lastly, uh, Pope and Young has confirmed a new world record elk. So congratulations to Sean O'Shea uh, on your new world record non-typical elk. The elk was panel scored about a week and a half ago and officially scored the bull uh, that was taken in Milburn County, Alberta at 449 and 48 inches. Uh, an absolute giant. So congratulations to Sean on an amazing trophy. Uh, as always, if you have any news to send to me, uh, please reach out. Mike Salter on Facebook or bearded underscore bow 121 on Instagram. And with that, enjoy the rest of your ride. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you, buddy. Um, I'm dead silent, bro. It's you guys need to hear this for yourselves. Introducing Will. <laughs> nice shot. Comes a shooter, shooter, big buck. Stack, stack, stack. back on the phone with will jimeno how are you will good guys thanks for having me on the show hey thanks for taking the time and joining us man it really means a lot to us i know you're a really busy man got a lot going on so uh yeah turkey hunting yeah I know. <laughs> gotta get back to turkey hunting and uh thinking about turkey hunting so i'm always busy like that my wife says it's, it's that time of year man it's the most important time of the year i guess in my book anyways yeah i, re- I was already down in alabama last week my daughter killed a big gobbler uh, I came close twice and I can't wait to get back there and, uh, to pick her up from Auburn, Alabama, where she goes to school over university and get a crack at a bird before, uh, you know, before I come back from Alabama. Wow. How, how was it, man? Finally getting back in the saddle and being able to Turkey hunt. You know what? I'm kind of blessed, uh, and not blessed for living in what I call, uh, New Germany, New Jersey, because we've get to bow hunt till, uh, February, 19th might have been the 20th this year so i had you know a little downtime and before you knew it you know uh was packing up the truck to go down and see my daughter visit her grab a bunch of her stuff uh to bring back so when i go back in four weeks i don't have as much stuff to bring back with me when she finishes the school year but 
took that opportunity to do a little boat, uh, little uh, turkey hunting with her. So uh, it was great. It was great to be back out in the woods. It was great to hear the gobblers gobbling, you know, and uh, to see her kill a beautiful bird was just, uh, it, it's a gift. It really is. That's awesome, man. Well, why don't we turn this key, man, get this drive underway. Why don't you tell everyone who you are, where you're from, and, and what you do? Well, my name is Will Jimeno. I'm a retired Port Authority Police uh, detective with the Port Authority Police of New York and New Jersey. I'm uh, one of the two human beings that survived from underneath the World Trade Center. And uh, today, basically, uh, what I've done since 9-11 and recovering from my injuries is just try to be a good dad, uh, a good husband, uh, and I spent a lot of time hunting. So I'm, I'm very blessed in that aspect. And uh, today, basically, you know, um, with the 20th anniversary coming up, we're doing a lot of interviews. Um, I have a couple books out that we'll talk about that are coming out. Uh, one here, a children's book at the beginning of May, and another book that I, I know is going to help a lot of people, especially our veterans, law enforcement officers, first responders uh, with PTSD. So that's basically my life right now, and I'm blessed. I, I truly don't take any day for granted. Uh, what I have is a new lease on life. So that's basically what I do today. That's awesome. Well, I'll be the first to say that I, I'm honored to have you on here. So thank you. Your, your ordeal and what you went through actually sparked a eight year ordeal in my life. And, uh, I mean, it fired me to go and serve my country. So well, God bless you. Thank you for your service to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you is it's an honor. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Well, it goes both ways. I, I tell everybody, you know, I'm blessed to have a lot of kind words. I mean, I served in the military. I was in the Navy uh, from 86 to 90 on the USS Tripoli LPH-10, the only one to get uh, see combat in the first Gulf War. Uh, she got hit by a mine. But, uh, you know, I, I tell people we're all Americans, and those of us like you, me, and everybody else that have served this nation, uh, we love our country. And, uh, you know, I always thank everybody. You know, even the young people going into the military today, I thank them all the time from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, because, you know, you're what keeps us free. And, uh, you know, men like you and that have picked up the ball when after we got attacked and went overseas and did what they had to do to serve our country. You know, we're blessed to have men and women like you in our ranks. So thank you for your service. Well, I appreciate that. And again, I'm honored. You know. There's nobody more more American than you will. Like listening to some of your podcasts <laughs> and some of the other stuff and watching you on social media, man. That like and and you you now were you born in US? No, so I was born in Barranquilla, Colombia. So I always laugh because the kids, especially now that I'm you know a little bit older, I'm I'm, I'm 53 and when I go speak at schools, uh, you know, I always say, you know, does anybody know where Barranquilla is? And they look at me and I say, "Well, you guys know who Shakira is or uh, Sofia Vergara?" And they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, that's where I'm from, where they're from. Uh, but I was born in, in, in Barranquilla, Colombia. It's on the coast of, of South uh, Colombia, South America. And my parents brought me here when I was two years old. And we settled in a town called Hackensack, New Jersey. It's 12 miles outside New York City. Uh, my mom wanted to make sure that she raised me, raised me in, a, in a nice suburb. And eventually my, my sister, who was born here, she's an American citizen, you know, from birth. Uh, so we were brought to this country with... Uh, the dream of many immigrants and it's to come to the greatest country on earth. You know, uh, the one thing I'm proud of is my parents, you know, did everything legally. Uh, and I say that, I say that proudly because uh, it's important for our country to understand that, you know, there is a legal system and uh, immigrants for the most part um, that have been in this country for a long time, feel the same way that the way you protect the nation is by following the laws. So my parents did everything by the law. 
Uh, and, you know, I was blessed to be raised in a great town, uh, went to Catholic school as a, as a child. And my dad was a welder. My mom was a beautician. So you can imagine back in the 70s, to put a kid through Catholic school, it costs you a lot of money. But my mom and dad really, uh, we have a lot of faith based uh, in our family. You know, we're Catholic. And my mom wanted to make sure that my religion was part of my life. And one of the things I rem always remember my mom telling me, she goes, you know, we come to this country and you don't forget your heritage, right? Because we all come from different parts of the world. I mean, let's face it, we all know the Native American is the only person that can really claim, uh, you know, that they're truly from this continent. But she said, bring your heritage, but we're gonna fly the American flag, we're gonna learn English, and you're gonna participate in this country and make it better. So that's something my, my mom and my dad instilled in me since from a young age. That's why when you say how much I love my country, I mean, it really comes from my parents and they come from a different country. So, you know, one of the messages I tell everybody is if a kid from Colombia can love this country that much, if you're blessed to be born here, you should adore it beyond words, you know, and that's something I try to preach today, especially in this crazy whirlwind, right? I mean, I don't want to get into that, but, but you know, <laughs> I, I, just want, I, I just want people to understand how special this country is, you know, and, you know, the, stop infighting because we really do have other enemies that are eyeballing us and uh, are probably sitting back enjoying what's going on today. Uh, so, uh, you know, as a survivor uh, of the worst attack in U.S. history, you know, I want people to understand that this country is the greatest country on earth and they attacked us for a reason. They, they attacked us because we're free. We're able to, to have women vote. We're able to speak our minds, you know, and uh, that's the, one of the main reasons those terrorists, well, as I call them, cowards, attacked us. Absolutely. Now, you were one of the only ones to survive the attack, right? That were underneath? Yeah, so uh, it took a year. Uh, it was the following year when we actually found that out. My sergeant, Sergeant John McLaughlin, who led uh, our team of five into the towers to rescue people, and I were the only two to survive from underneath the rubble. So we actually had both uh, buildings fall on us because we were literally, for those that don't know the World Trade Center, it was two buildings. It was connected by a mall level. And uh, in the hall, there was a, a hallway that you go from Tower 1 to Tower 2. We were coming back from Tower 2 and making our way to Tower 1 when everything collapsed. And we were literally in the epicenter. So we were not too far from the sphere up on the, on the plaza level. So when we found that out was the following year, we were still in wheelchairs. We went to thank some of our rescue workers and we went to NYPD ESU trucker SWAT team to thank them. And that's when uh, they told us that you guys know that you're the only two to survive from underneath the World Trade Center. And that was really, it really blew our mind away because again, we're struggling with our injuries. Uh, we were fighting for our lives. We were kind of a well-kept secret for months. Um, and it was about a total of about 20 people that survived when everything was said and done. Uh, most of them were in a stairwell. Uh, there was another young lady that was found actually, actually midday the next day after my sergeant um, that was trapped uh, above ground, stuck literally in a stairwell. And uh, I remember the, the guys from NYPD issue truck. I mean, they said, you know, you guys were the glimmer of hope. We were hoping there'd be more people. We searched for three weeks after trying to find people in voids, like in the void, we found you guys and we couldn't find anybody. And uh, so today, you know, Scott Strauss, who led my rescue operation, great guy. I mean, they, they could actually make a movie out of this guy. He, he, he puts John Wick to shame. I mean, this guy really 
the stuff he's done in real life is, and he's so humble, but it, it, I know it tugs on my heart every time he says, he goes, you know, you, you were that light on a dark day because for weeks we searched and we couldn't find anything out. You're the one light that I have from that day. And uh, it, it goes to show you a couple of things. It goes to show you what the human body can sustain. Uh, and it can show you the love that your fellow human being will give to you and put their lives on the line to come into hell to get a fellow American, fellow human being out. So, uh, yeah, it's always mind boggling. It's still, I think I was talking to somebody today about, I still can't believe I survived. You know, I still have those moments where I'm like, how am I here? You know, I mean, you look at the devastation that happened there. Uh, if you look at the hole we were in, uh, the hours that we were trapped, it, it, it's something that's unimaginable. Uh, but that's why I tell people, listen, you know, the three things I preach is faith, hope, and love. Those three things. You got to have faith. And I don't preach religion. If um, if you don't have faith in a religion, then I don't care. Have faith in yourself. But you have to believe in something to keep you going. You know, hope. You always got to have hope. Uh, always understand that the more you fight, the more chance you give yourself, the more hope you're going to have. And love. Have love for your family. Love for yourself. You know. Um, you know, and I say that specifically to people out there that are going through a hard time, uh, those three things, having faith in yourself, faith in your religion, hope, always knowing that you're going to be able to get to that light, to be able to get to happiness and love, love yourself because you deserve the best in life, you know, and right now during this pandemic, we have so many people who are depressed, have anxiety, uh, fellow Americans and human beings who have PTSD, you know, I want them to know that, listen, I was buried for a total of 13 hours. And I went through hell. So many bad, bad things happened to us down there. Uh, and, you know, I, I wear a brace today because my, my injuries are severe where it cut my nerve. So I have drop foot. My leg looks like I got bit up by a shark. Uh, but, you know, what? I'm here to tell people no matter what darkness you're in, believe in yourself. Keep going forward because life is short and you deserve to be happy. So that's one of the things that I use as when people say, hey, man, were you one of the two guys buried under there? I'm like, yeah. But instead of crying about it, I want to say, let me tell you what I learned from it. And what I learned from it is to overcoming your challenges, overcoming uh, fears that you have, you know, and most of all, overcoming letting yourself down. You know, that's the main thing I want people to know. Don't let yourself down. Uh, because there were moments down there where I almost let myself down, which would in turn had let my family down, my sergeant down, my country down. So, uh, you know, uh, it's amazing to say that we had actually 220 stories hit us and two of us survived. So that's incredible. Wow. Well, I guess, I guess without further ado, man, why don't you take them into what, what actually happened from, you know, September 11th that morning that when you, when you clocked in, man. So, you know, September 11th was a beautiful day as everybody knows. And, uh, and I, I say that sparingly because we need to teach this new generation what happened that day, just like, I was taught about Pearl Harbor. I think it's very, very important. Agreed. And uh, uh, so on September 11th, I was living my dream. I literally was. I had gotten on the Port Authority Police of New York and New Jersey. It's a bi-state agency. We have all the major transportation facilities in New York and New Jersey. So we have the Lincoln Tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, the George Washington Bridge, the Gothels Bridge. Uh, we have the three airports, the Newark, uh, John F. Ke Kennedy Airport, LaGuardia, Teterboro Airport. Uh, we have the PATH trains, we have the World Trade Center, and where I work, which is the bus terminal, which is the largest bus terminal in the country and the busiest, busiest in the world. Um, so I was living a dream. 
uh, six weeks prior to the attack, I had bought my first home with my beautiful wife, Allison. Uh, we had a four-year-old little girl named Bianca. And my wife was, at the time, seven months pregnant. And ever since I was a little kid, all I wanted to be was a cop. So when I got on this police force, uh, it was great because it's the 26th largest in the country. Uh, it was going to give me an opportunity to be able to move around in different units if possible, you know, whether it be canine, ESU, which is our SWAT team, detectives. So we had a slew of opportunities within the department. Uh, I had graduated January 19th of 2001 at the World Trade Center in the Marriott. So only nine months prior was uh, that I become a Port Authority police officer. And about it was a class of about 78 of us and about 50 of us went to the bus terminal. Now, what was cool about the bus terminal was it was a place that you got baptized by fire. Even though it's in Midtown New York, uh, even though they cleaned up Midtown New York back then, because uh, unfortunately right now Manhattan's upside down, um, it was a place you still dealt with the gangs, drugs. There was always something to do. And you wanted to be a cop. I always wanted to be a cop. So when I tell you there was no lack of, of, of crime when you really looked, uh, it was there. And it was great. I mean, I was loving it. From the January when I got assigned to the bus terminal all the way till uh, September 11th, it was just awesome. You know, uh, bonded with my fellow officers, really understood what the thin blue line means. You know, it's just like being in the military. You look out for each other. You love each other. You work together. And uh, on the morning of September 11th, I did what I was doing every day, which was I was working day tours. I got up in the morning, got ready, went into my bedroom, would kiss Allison goodbye. I'd kiss her belly because she was seven months pregnant, like I said. Uh, goodbye and walk into my little girl's room, Bianca, and kiss her goodbye. And I literally would skip down the stairs of the porch of my new house uh, into a Bronco 2. And as a rookie, <laughs> as a rookie, money was tight. And let, let me let me be straight out. The Port Authority Police of New York and New Jersey, as police officers, we do well uh, with the uh, with the salary. But I didn't care about that. I just wanted to be a cop. Uh, great benefits, great pay. Uh, but as a rookie, you're still kind of struggling. And I jumped them in this Bronco too. And I remember the side view mirror, uh, I had duct tape on it because the side view mirror would always fall. So I had duct tape and rolled in from Clifton, New Jersey, which is only 20 minutes outside New York City, into the bus terminal and got there and went downstairs in the locker room. And this is something I tell everybody, especially kids. I said, listen, I'm going to tell you a little secret right now. And you're going to remember me for this. I don't care where you go, what you do. Once you're done and you're in the real world, you got to find out you never outgrow high school. All right. I'm telling you that right now. Walk in the locker room and everybody's busting chops. And, you know, it's like, all right, adult men acting like kids. Yep. But it was fun, right? It's the locker room. So we're there uh, changing our uniforms, go upstairs to what we call roll call in our reserve room, which is our break room. Go upstairs. That's where you're given all the pertinent information for the day. And they're going to give us our post where we're going to be stationed that day. Went upstairs, nothing crazy. I got post 3-5, which is on the corner of 42nd 8th Avenue. So I went upstairs, and we went out to post. And in the morning at the bus terminal, we call it the rush. So the rush is where you have everybody from New Jersey, uh, parts of Connecticut, upstate New York, uh, downtown Manhattan. They're coming into the bus terminal to go into midtown Manhattan. It's thousands of people just coming through this bus terminal. And it, it's it's a quite a, a scene to see thousands of people walking by. I mean, it's great. You'll see women who will bark at other guys like, yo, give me my space. It's funny. You know, everybody, they're just unique. And I was in front of the North building looking at the doors as everybody's coming out. There's an awning above me that goes out to the corner of 42nd and 8th Avenue. Uh, 
there was a sergeant, Sergeant Ross was out there with two fellow officers, Pat McNerney and uh, Sanchez. And they were just standing. It was a normal day. And I'm standing and watching all these people come out. And I remember just happening to look over to my right and I see Sergeant Ross going like this. And he's actually pointing into the sky and he's following something. Now, I couldn't see anything, but what caught my eye was the intersections in New York City, for those who have never been out there, they're pretty large. You know, crossing the street from 42nd uh, to the other side of 42nd Street, it's a big intersection. And for a split second, I just saw the intersection of 42nd and 8th Avenue just go black. A shadow came over. I didn't think anything of it. I saw him following it. I just went back to looking at people, making sure everybody was safe. Uh, you know, we're stationed there uh, strategically throughout the buildings to make sure everybody's safe. Anybody needs information, of course, by crime. And I think it was only a couple minutes later when our radios cracked and they said 840, all units 840 to the police desk. So an 840 means everybody come back to the police desk. And I had not heard that those nine months to grab every cop and bring them off the street, especially during the rush. So I started walking across 41st Avenue and I was coming over to, toward the entrance of the South Building and where I hooked up with a, a classmate of mine and a fellow officer named Dominic Pizzullo. Dominic had become a police officer, not because he wanted to be a cop. He was actually a high school teacher. Uh, he came over for the money. But during those nine months, he really understood what it meant to be a cop and be part of the thin blue line. And he was such a good guy that he would tell me his students would used to come by his house and say, hey, Mr. Pizzullo, please come back, come back to the high school. And he was just a very adored kind of guy. And he was a great guy. He was in shape. Uh, I remember uh, he would call me Willie. Um, only my mom really calls me Willie. And a couple of close friends from when I was a kid, because in the Navy, it transitioned to Will. And ever since that, I've always been Will. But Dominic was the kind of guy that I just really liked. And he was cool because we have what's called swap days. You can swap days for different things. And Dominic never liked doing that because then you have to pay the day back and sometimes you get to work more. But he would swap with me when I moved, when I bought my new house. That's the kind of guy he was. So as we started heading back down the main uh, corridor of the South building toward our police desk on 9th Avenue. Uh, he said, Willie, something bad must have happened for them to call us all back. I said, yeah, it must've been really bad. So when we hit the police desk, we come around the corner. One of the things I learned in the military was uh, follow somebody in that knows what they're doing. So your chances are much greater when you come out. And the reality is, and I tell people this, you know, BS can only take you so far. Good bosses or good sergeants or good leaders, um, you know them right off the bat. They don't talk a lot. When your situation, they're decisive. They know what to do. Uh, and one of those people that I had been, unfortunately, on some gun calls with uh, was Sergeant John McLaughlin. But he was always on point. The guy knew what, what his job was. He understood how to take care of his men. And I remember walking around the police desk and looking up. I could see the lieutenants. I could see the sergeants. But I remember looking at Sergeant McLaughlin's face, and I could see concern in his face. That kind of bothered me a little bit. But we went back, and we came around the corner back into our reserve room, our break room. And we had a big TV set there. New York One was on. And I remember walking around the corner and just seeing a big gaping hole in Tower One. And I remember black smoke coming out of it. And Sergeant Ross, the guy who had seen the plane, said, those are terrorists. Now, what sets the Port Authority police apart from all the other police departments in our region is that we were, we were, uh, we were attacked in 1993. The World Trade Center was attacked. Ever since then, the senior guys would say, look, to all the rookies, to all the young cops, where we work are target-rich environments. If you think about it, if a terrorist is going to kill a lot of people, they're going to go to the busiest, most hustle-bustle places. 
So if you look at our facilities, the airports, the bridges, the tunnels, at any time, you can find a lot of people massed together in one spot. And the senior guys would always say they're going to come back to those buildings. Well, man, their words could not have been any truer. So at that moment, everything I learned in the academy was actually coming back to me like, oh, my God, they told us, you know, we're a target rich environment. This is happening. And this is crazy. So one of the first things I've always done uh, back then was uh, I'd call my wife when I had a chance just to let her know, hey, I'm okay. Because we had some incidents. We had some shootings. We had some stabbings that made the news. So I remember turning around and grabbing a payphone, which we had in our reserve room. And I actually got through to Allison because that day the phone lines were all tied up. And I got through to her and she said, hey, you know, what's going on? I said, I don't know. The plane has hit the World Trade Center. But what was amazing was even though he said terrorists, you're still hoping it was an accident. Because even back then, there was no way technology was still far advanced that no, an airliner was just not going to slam into a building like that. Uh, we talked a little bit. And uh, she was asking me questions, which I didn't have the answer to. Our inspector, who was in charge of our command, came around the corner and said, hey, we've commandeered a bus. We're going to call your guys' names. Get on the bus. We're going down to help our brothers and sisters uh, at the Trade Center because that's our, our building. So we have a command there to evacuate people. I told my wife, Allison, I love you. You got to go. Actually, I take that back because she corrects me. She goes, Will, that was one of the first times you never said I love you. And you, you just said I got to go and you hung up. Uh, she reminds me about that one. But uh, <laughs> oh, I my mind was my mind was just the job. We got to get people home, right? So I remember myself, Dominic Pizzullo, another officer, uh, Michael Robles, who was a senior guy. I, I remember us not even waiting for our names to be called. We just started walking down the hallway. We went down the back to Ninth Avenue, and there was a bus that they literally kicked everybody that was traveling somewhere in their suitcases off to the side, and we started loading up. So there's about 20 of us. And uh, I remember looking out the side, Sergeant McLaughlin jumped into the police suburban with the inspector in the front, another sergeant, Sergeant Feeling, and they led the way. And uh, I laugh about this because I think about it nowadays. The bus driver, I mean, he must have been like a little kid because he was yelling, let's do this, let's go. Like, All right, what's going on? Because we're flying now. And usually it'll take you about, I would say, 20 minutes to get down to, to the trade center with traffic. We were flying. I mean, we were flying. Uh, on the way down, we're kind of BSing people trying to figure things out. Some guys like, yo, there's no way this terrorist is an accident. You know, other guys like, there's no way. Uh, Dominic was trying to call his family and his cell phone was not working. And um, I remember we got into the village and as we started getting closer, uh, the bus went silent. I remember it was two city blocks back before we got down to where we needed to go. And we looked out to our right and there was an FDNY ambulance working on a person who was in the middle of the street two city blocks back and there was blood all the street and you could see it. Something flew must have hit him. And that's when the bus went sound like, yo, this is real. And I remember we went uh, up another two blocks, stopped on uh, West Broadway and uh, we got off the bus and I remember getting off the bus and there was just, it looked like a war zone. I mean, there was papers flying everywhere. There's dust everywhere. Kept hearing explosions. I look up and I could see the gaping hole in tower one. Uh, what I saw was on the corner of two was a fire. But I thought in my mind, okay, the, the plane hit, there was debris, and the other building, the corner of it was on fire. Little did I know, or none of us knew, that on the way down to the Trade Center, a second plane had hit. So I could not see the big gaping hole on the other side of the tower. So I thought, okay, we got one tower in trouble, and the other one, uh, the corner of it got on fire. 
So we're standing there, and all of a sudden, one of our senior cops, uh, Ronnie Delmo, just yelled, look, they're jumping. And I remember turning around looking at Ronnie, and, and, and I, I saw him literally crying. And I look up, and all you can see out of this black, gaping hole is bodies. People were jumping. People were jumping by themselves, holding hands. And they would jump, and then they would disappear behind um, Building 5, the building in front of us. So it was lower. So you had the towers, of course, there. 110 stories high and people are jumping from the hundredth floor and above. And it, it was, it was tough. It was tough. You know, I mean, that's why I became a cop to help people, you know, and you just felt like this big, I mean, here we are with our shields and our guns and you start realizing, you know, what tough is and uh, tough is something that's inside of you uh, because we're all human beings and, and we're small. You know, what brings us together, makes us powerful is when we're together. And uh, I just think, I remember thinking to myself, every time I saw someone jumping, that was like taking a pebble and throwing it in a lake and you get that ripple effect. Every time someone jumped, that was somebody's mother, brother, sister, father, and the list kept going. And all I could think about is like, we need to get up there and like bust a wall down and so they can see our patches and say, let's go, let's get you home. And we're standing there just kind of like in awe. That's when Sergeant McLaughlin came running up. He had parked the suburban on the corner of church and Vesey. And we were actually looking at Vesey. There was nothing on Vesey street except destruction. I mean, there were uh, plane parts, there were debris, there was concrete. Unfortunately, there were human remains. And he came running through that toward us and asked for volunteers. He said, hey, I need guys that know how to use Scott Air Pack. So as Port Authority police officers, we're trained not only in law enforcement, but we're the first responders at the airports. So if a plane goes down, we're out there. So we're trained in firefighting as well. So Scott Airpacks are the Airpacks you see firefighters wear, for those that don't know. And I remember uh, just three of us volunteering. I can't tell you who volunteered first. Myself, Dominic Pizzullo, and another classmate who graduated with us in January, uh, Antonio Rodriguez. Uh, Antonio had four years on the NYPD. He actually came over to the Port Authority because financially it was just a win for him. Uh, but he was a, just a great guy. He was Portuguese always had this Portuguese accent and just a real kind, kind guy, always looking out for everybody. Would always make sure, hey, carry a, a second pair of handcuff keys. If you're, you know, walking around all day, make sure you throw a bottle of water in your back pocket. He was just always looking out for his fellow officers. And the three of us just said, hey, we graduated from the academy. We know how to use the Scott Airpacks. So Sergeant Gawker said, let's go. We're a team of four. We're going in. Now, the rest of the cops were going to do stuff. You know, they were staging right there and had to get orders. But we started following Sergeant McLaughlin. And I'll tell you what, man. Uh, you know, I know you've been in the military. Um, you know, one thing I've, I've found is uh, guys that say they're never scared are two things. They're lying or they're crazy. Agreed. Um, and, and as I was running toward the building, I remember looking back. And here's four of us running toward this massive structure that's on fire. People are jumping. Debris everywhere. It looked like a war zone. And it's just four of us. And I'm not going to lie to you. I was scared. I was scared. But then I thought to myself, you took an oath. And I looked at Dominic. I looked at Antonio. I could see fear in their eyes, but we, we had a job to do. And that's why I tell people, especially today, if you want to be a cop, you want to be a firefighter, you want to join the military, you take an oath. Understand that there's going to be a moment that you're going to question that oath. But you have to hold true to your word because people are counting on you. Whether you like it or not, people are counting on you. And I remember just pushing through that. Like, you know, I'm scared, but we got a job to do, you know? 
and I'm running toward there and I kept thinking about the people we needed to help. So we ran up there and we got to the building five and it was a, a side entrance. So Sergeant McClock said, Jimeno, take our hats and the time we were carrying our PR-24s or Billy Clubs and our memo books because we carry those in New York City. Uh, and he said, run up to the police suburban, drop the equipment in there, meet us back here in the emergency room. So they're called E-rooms. They're set up throughout the World Trade Center. They got Scott air packs, they got helmets, they got all the equipment first responders need to be able to attack a situation uh, of a fire or anything like that. So they went in, I ran up the block, came around the corner, and that's when the Chevy Suburban that Sergeant Glockin had driven down was just totaled. The whole front end was smashed in, and that's when I realized, hey, dummy, there's stuff falling from above. Because you're in the excitement of everything, you're not really thinking about the concrete coming down. Right. And this, this Chevy Suburban's got this big piece of concrete on the front. I'm like, oh, so the, the side view mirror, uh, the side passenger window was busted out. So I threw our equipment in there and I looked down Church Street where there's a, a, you know, an exit from the towers. And man, all I saw was people being herded out of the cattle, you know, just going. And I really couldn't compute everything. All I knew was like, stay close to the building so nothing hits you. Get back to the team. Ran back, got to the team. Uh, there was only... Uh, Antonio was able to get us a, a bunker coat on uh, me and Dominic. Just, we were too big for the bunker coats that were left. So we threw our Scott air packs on, we threw our helmets before you knew it. We looked like firefighters with guns on our sides, on our sides. And one of the things we promised each other as we checked each other's tanks was no matter what happens, we don't leave each other. And we promised each other that. So at that point, and again, for those that have, don't have no idea or concept of the world trade center, there are two large buildings with a mall level, that connects the buildings and there's escalators to take you down into the subway or the path train. So at that point, Sergeant Glock said, we're going down one level to the police desk to get more equipment. So as we went downstairs, uh, we get on this elevator and, you know, it's crazy because all this chaos is running around. And there's moments where you like stop and think like, this is funny because here's a fire going on. And the Sergeant says, come on, get on the elevator. Uh, you know, uh, and I'm like, not supposed to get on the elevator during the fire, but here we are getting on the elevator. Shows you how much I trust this guy, right? So we go down, we come out to the police desk, and we walk into the police desk. And you ever have those moments where you're like, man, I'm seeing something, but it just doesn't make any sense. So as we nope. walk into the police desk, there's an actual piece of the plane that our detectives brought in. So you walk in, and even though I know a plane has apparently hit the building, why is there a piece of a plane here? You know, the human mind is like, just doesn't understand it. So at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin said, hey, listen, get more equipment, get as, uh, more Scott air packs, get some lights. And there was a mail cart, load it up and we're going to go. So at that point, we load it up, come back, get on the elevator again. We come up and we come out back into the mall level. As I'm pushing the, the cart, we're going to go around the escalators down to the path train and there's an intersection. You can make a right to go to Tower 1 or go straight to Tower 2. So as we start going there, the one thing I want to tell everybody, you know, 20 years later, this is something so important I want people to understand. The one thing I saw in the midst of evil was a lot of love. There was a steady flow of people coming from Tower 1, total strangers. And they were helping each other. You know, there were people yelling. There were people hurt. I saw this steady flow of line of people working their way out of the building. And I remember seeing a black gentleman with a white gentleman carrying this blonde woman with a cut on her leg. She was bleeding in a single file line. And I thought to myself, man, if these civilians can be this brave, us in uniform, we better be three notches above them because 
they're showing me courage. They're showing me love. And I, I'll never forget that. And as we came to the intersection, we actually bumped into another team of Port Authority officers. They, they were dressed like us. They had a mail cart. They had equipment. Their sergeant talked to my sergeant, Sergeant McLaughlin. And the guy pushing their cart was a classmate that graduated with me, uh, Warren Stewart. Uh, Stewart was an African-American guy. He was a detective at the NYP. Great guy over there. He came over again for, his, uh, for the money. Actually, in the academy, uh, him and his wife gave birth to their first little girl. And I remember me and him just talking and like, yo, this is crazy, right? And uh, it was it was short because then the sergeant's like, all right, let's go. So Stewie said, Will, you know, Jimeno, because we go by last name. He goes, Jimeno, be safe. And I would just call him Stewie because his last name was Stewie. He's like, Stewie, be safe. And I remember just us punching hands, you know, like, be safe. That's the last time I saw him. Actually, that whole team of like five uh, cops, they never actually even recovered their bodies. But that's the last time I saw him. And they were going on to do their their recovery, I guess, whatever rescue they were doing. And we continued on. Now we're going to Tower 2. And we get to Tower 2. So the towers, to get into the lobby where the, uh, the elevator banks are, you got to go through these big revolving doors. But we stopped before them. And Sergeant McGlock said, I'm going to go downstairs with the guys. Mano, you stay here. We're going to go downstairs to get more equipment at another E-room. I said, all right, fine. So as I stood there, I could look into the lobby of two. And again, it, it, it was something that brought fear in my heart. I mean, I saw people who had passed. I saw people running. I saw cops on the far side, uh, NYPD and Port Authority guys shooting out windows so more people can get the hell out. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, this sucks. And then I would hear these noises. I would hear the noises of concrete hitting the ground. But then, unfortunately, was another distinctive noise, and that was of a human body hitting the ground. And I kept hearing those a lot more because from the point we were inside the building, there were certain points where you can hear outside, and we knew when a human body would hit the ground. It was just this distinct noise compared to the concrete. And that really sucked because, again, now you know somebody else has died. That's when I was approached by another Port Authority police officer named Bruce Reynolds. Bruce was an African-American. He was a 17 or I don't even know, I think 16, 17 year veteran of the NYPD. The only reason I knew of Bruce was because where I grew up is in Bergen County, New Jersey, which is borders the George Washington Bridge. And he worked there. George Washington Bridge, again, is another Port Authority command. Uh, and I would read the, in the paper of these Port Authority cops that would help save people's lives because people go to that bridge to jump in, in their lives. So he had made the paper a couple of times. So I kind of knew he was never met him of course he was senior to me and he started walking over and he said uh reynolds gwb george washington bridge i said Jimeno, bt bus terminal and we talked a little bit and again i needed that uplift especially from a senior guy you know at this time i'm 33 you know i've been in the military uh but this this was this was war i mean this is war on our land and I remember him just saying, you know, kid, it's going to be a long day, but we're going to get people home. And I needed that. You know, I needed that encouragement, especially from a senior guy. We talked a little bit. And now Bruce should not have been in those buildings. You know, he was short, bald, a little heavy set, but he had a lung condition. Uh, but still, there he is in a smoke-filled environment, putting his life on the line. And I always laugh because I, I think he wanted to be an Irishman, not an African-American. He married an Irish woman uh, back in the day. <laughs> He was the only African-American cop with a bald head that would paint his bald head green on St. Patrick's Day. Nice. And he loved going to Ireland. He loved going to Ireland. Uh, and actually, 
the funny thing was uh, Bruce lived out in the country. He would drive 90 miles a day uh, each way, I think. Uh, he lived out here in New Jersey, but out in Sussex County, where really it's all rednecks. And he was like the only black guy. And they loved him out there. I mean, this guy was the best. You know, he grew up in the Bronx and just that kind of character, just a lovable guy, you know. And um, that's when the team started coming up and Bruce said, you know, see you later. And I said, all right, be safe. And that would be the last time I saw Bruce because he actually walked over to Tower 2 Command Center. Uh, they found his body, uh, I think it was the following February, March, right where I told him he'd be. And they found him. But, you know, I always take the time to tell these stories and, and, and say their names because that's what keeps them alive. And uh, but at that point, Sergeant McGarkin came out and I had been pushing the cart from the police desk to Tower 2. Uh, and I was going to start pushing again. That's when Antonio Rodriguez said, hey, Will, let's switch. He goes, you're, if you're tired, you're not going to be any good to us when we get to where we're going. Made sense, right? Teamwork, you know, and I'm like, all right, so we switch. So at this point, now we're going to head down this corridor, which is probably about, I'd say, about 50 yards down. We're going to make a left to go to tower one, which is the tower that we assume was in distress. We didn't know two was in distress. So at that point, Antonio's behind the cart uh, and at, we meet another officer, um, uh, Chris Amoroso. There's a famous picture of Chris. He was saving people uh, that morning before we got there. He had saved four people, but he had taken an eye injury. So when we hooked up with him, like, hey, you okay? He's like, yeah, man, we're, I'm fine. Uh, let's just get people out of here. So at that point, he became part of our team. So now Antonio's pushing the cart. Um, Christopher is to Antonio's 9 o'clock. Sergeant McLaughlin is at the 11 o'clock of the cart. I'm at the noon. And Dominic is at well, the 1 o'clock. And we're walking down this hallway. Halfway down this hallway, uh, Sergeant McLaughlin stops us. Uh, his radio goes off. And it's our inspector asking for where our location is. At that point, Sergeant McLaughlin said, hey, we're here. Uh, we're at this spot. Is there something wrong with Tower 2? You know, and the inspector's like, what do you mean? And some firefighters walking by and he yells at him, hey, be careful. Just came up from the B1 level and the elevator shafts are buckling. So as we all know, right, if you have structure and the base is bent, you know, collapsing, something's going to give. He never thought, you know, to this day, he would have said, well, if I ever thought those buildings were coming down, I would have never taken you guys in there. But nobody thought the buildings were coming down that day. So at that point, all I, we're going to start walking again when we hear a humongous boom. Literally turn around from where we're coming. I'm looking back into the lobby of two, uh, of Tower 2, and I see a fireball. I mean, the size of my house. And I'm standing there, shaking, holding my helmet, like in a bad movie. Everything's shaking. And uh, remember when I said follow somebody in, knows what they're doing, your chances of getting out a little bit higher? Oh, yeah. That was Sergeant McLaughlin. He... Uh, he actually says, and it's a miracle, we actually stopped with a doorway to our right that led to a, a freight elevator. And he says, run, run toward the elevator. Now, mind you, I had been out of the World Trade Center maybe twice before on some protests. I do not know the buildings. This man knew the buildings like the back of his hand because he was there at the 93 bombing. He helped uh, set up the security after the 93 bombing. And he just said, run. And all I know is he said, run, I'm running that way. So at that point, Dominic, who's ahead of me is running into this hallway. I'm following him. I kind of looked behind me. I could see Sergeant McLaughlin coming. And what was, what he saw, which I didn't see was as the building's coming down, that debris pushing. What do they do in the middle East? And that's what Sergeant McLaughlin thought. They blow something up. They'll let the first responders come in. 
They blow him up again. Again. So what he thought was, hey, car bomb. I got to get my team to safety. He figured if I if, if he could get our team around the corner of this ele- freight elevator, maybe it might deflect some of the incoming debris coming because he actually saw a debris field coming at us. I didn't see that. So as we hit this hallway, I remember the lights flickering. And that's the first time I said, man, well, what the hell did you just get yourself into? I really thought that. And it's amazing how your mind works, how much you can think in a split second. So that's what I thought. I said, what did you get yourself into? And as we're running, I thought I saw a light in front of me. Human reaction, save yourself. I'm thinking to myself, run toward that light. But then I said, wait a second. We promised each other we wouldn't leave each other, right? So Dominic starts turning to the left. I start following Dominic. That's when something picked me up and just slammed me down. And I'm on my back in a 45-degree angle. And police officers, the first thing you go for is your radio. I mean, that's your lifeline. So I had uh, my radio on my lapel here. I'm yelling 813, which is our code for officer down. That means everybody come. 813, officers down, 813, officers down. I'm yelling frantically. Something hits my head. My helmet flies off. Now, mind you, I had a chin strap on. It just ripped my helmet off. And I'm getting bombarded with concrete. I'm yelling 813. I lose my radio. All I could do is cover myself. And uh, it's incredible because uh, it seemed like it was going on forever. But at the same time, it just seemed like it was over fast. It was a roar of like, the only way I can equate it to was maybe a million freight trains coming down on you and a lot of pain. And then all of a sudden, everything went south. And I'm in the dark. I'm in a 45 degree angle and I can't move. Then all of a sudden, after a little bit, some light starts coming in from above. There was a hole about 30 feet up and it was like light starting to come through. It's really dusty. And uh, when the light, finally, I can kind of see, I see this literally what I know today is a wall that fell on my whole left side. And Dominic was buried under this wall in a push-up position right next to me. And I just see around me, I had maybe about two to three feet to my right, uh, and only about 12 inches high, and a wall down by my feet. And I don't see anything else. That's when Sergeant McLaughlin from the other side of that wall says, sound off. At this point, on the initial collapse, Sergeant McLaughlin is trapped but he's kind of stuck in a fetal position, like a baby. And he says, sound off. So I said, Jimeno, Dominic Pizzullo, said Pizzullo, and that's all we heard. Man, for the next two minutes, I just kept saying, uh, Antonio's name, his nickname was A-Rod, and Chris's name. And I just kept saying, A-Rod, Chris, A-Rod, Chris, for about two minutes. And I was kind of saying it frantically, you know, and Dominic said, Willie, they're in a better place. And man, that, that was hard. That was hard to say, man, you mean to tell me two of our buddies, two of our fellow officers, fellow Americans, fathers, sons, they're gone. I mean, they were gone. And uh, that that was tough, you know. But at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin, being the professional he was, he had 19 years on the Port Authority. Uh, he was a former ESU officer, SWAT officer. Um, he just said, all right, what's everybody's condition? So, I mean, his mind was work. So I said, I can't move. And I'm starting to feel a lot of pain because the shock now was wearing off. And now I'm starting to feel this pain of the crushing of my whole left side. And Dominic said, I'm stuck, but I think I can get out. He wasn't hurt at that time. I was. So uh, Sergeant McCock said, Pizzullo, you get out and then get Jimeno out. So at that point, it took a little bit. Uh, Dominic had to 
like shimmy out of his Scott air pack, literally crawl over my face and is in this little void next to me. And at that point, and, uh, you know, I think people can appreciate this. You know, there's a hole above us about 30 feet. Dominic was an in-shape guy. And he said, Sarge, I can go out that hole and go for help. And Sergeant McLaughlin said, no, if you leave us, you'll never find us because it's a debris field up there. You're not going to be able to find us. You have to get Jimeno out and then you and Jimeno get me out. And that's a concept that I think that especially for people who have never been on a team of people that have been in the military, law enforcement, have a hard time with because it's like you want to save yourself, but you're part of a team, so you can't leave a man behind. And there was a serious discussion down there between us. I mean, Dom said, Will, I got, I got a family and you know, kids at home. I said, I said, bro, I got a wife, a kid, and I got one on the way. I said, you know, if you leave us, you don't find us. You know, we talked about it. And he did what I felt was the right. He said, well, I'm going to try to get you out. You know, we're, we're a team. We're not going to leave each other. Uh, but, you know, that human side of you. And I, that's why I want people to understand. It's okay to be human. It's okay to have those emotions, you know. But you got to remember when you're, when you've taken an oath, when you're part of a team, you know, people depend on you. And uh, it takes a lot of courage. And let me tell you, Dominic, <laughs> I love him to death. You know, I mean, he turned around when he could have ran up a hole and God knows what would have happened. But he, he put his life on the line for us. So for the next 20 minutes, he really tried to get me out. And there was a piece of rebar wrapped around with a piece of concrete on my right side. And he would take this concrete off, but it would whip back and hit me. And believe it or not, in the midst of, of hell, we laughed. Because at one point, I'm like, yo, bro, you're kicking my ass. <laughs> and we laughed about it. You embrace but the then, suck. Yeah. And, but then at that moment, you know, after about 20 minutes, he, he kind of sat back and he said, Willie. I can't get you. And I remember fear coming over me. Oh my God. Like he really can't get me out. And that's when we heard another boom. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is it. I'm going to die. So one of the things I always did with my family is I do the, I love you sign and sign language. I love you. And all I could do was think to myself, put my cross the, I love you signs over my chest. Cause I figured I was going to die. If they found me, I'm hoping that somebody would have told my wife, Hey, we found him like this. She would know what I was thinking about. Because at that moment was the first time I thought about my family. Uh, the mission was always to get people home. And I didn't think about anything else but that. But at that moment when you knew, hey, I'm about to die, that's when I thought about my family. And at that point, I looked over and Dominic was could barely stand up and something just sat him down like a ragdoll. I heard Sergeant McLaughlin now yelling even more. He was in a lot of pain because now he's actually being crushed in that field position. He got crushed so bad, he literally had his sidearm, which sticks out. If you see cops, you know, it sticks out a little bit. It was like, a, a, it was embedded into his body. I mean, the, the leather was just crushing in, it was pushing on his body. Um, and I remember we were all yelling. And I remember looking and I could see Dominic get sat down really hard. And everything stopped again. I was in more pain. Sergeant Glockin was yelling in a lot of pain. And then I looked over at Dom and, you know, there was a lot of uh, blood coming out of his mouth. I knew he had sustained some bad internal injuries. And he said, Willie, I'm dying, man, He's, as he spit the blood out. And I just said, hold on, bro. You know, please hold on. I'm in pain. I'm trying to concentrate. And, and, and Dominic cracks a joke at that point. He says, Sarge, can I get a 3-8? And Sergeant Glock actually stopped yelling because a 3-8 means a break for us. Can I get an 8-3-8? And he said, can I get a 3-8? Sergeant Glock said, yeah, you can have a 3-8. And Dominic said, Willie. Don't ever forget I died trying to save you guys. I said, Dominic, I would never let anybody forget that. At that point, with the little bit of life he had, he takes out his sidearm and he fires one round. 
out that hole and just literally slumps over, you know, and, uh, and dies right, right next to me. And that was, that was, that was difficult, you know, because love Dominic, just a great human being. His kids from the Bronx loved him. You know, everybody who met Dominic loved Dominic, you know, and uh, it was tough. And at that point, I yelled, Sarge, Dom's gone. And Sergeant McLaughlin said, keep focused. In through his pain, he's like, keep focused. So I would do my best not to look at Dominic, you know, and uh, and he said, what can you see? What can you do? I said, I can't do much because at this point, all I have is the use of my right hand, a little bit of my left hand, and literally concrete was covering from my chest down, uh, my whole left side, and my my right leg was in a 90 degree angle, but stuck. All I had exposed was my sidearm, my first set of handcuffs, my radio was lost. So all I had was handcuffs and my sidearm. So I just kept yelling, PAPD officers down, PAPD officers down. And, you know, little did I know, we were literally, like I said, in between the two buildings. So both towers had fallen off. So Sergeant McLaughlin said, Jimeno, ain't nobody coming in here till tomorrow till they can secure the scene. So whatever's up there is bad. And we're literally in the middle. I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, how am I going to sustain keeping myself alive for that long? So at that point, the marathons, I call it, started, you know, I just, we kept talking to each other. I kept trying to uh, yell and yell and yell. So after a while, uh, these fireballs start falling. Again, planes have been hit, uh, planes have hit the World Trade Center. There's jet fuel everywhere. Uh, being in the Navy on a ship that carried helicopters, I knew how bad jet fuel was, you know, and all of a sudden I could smell it and these little fireballs start falling in from this hole and they're rolling down toward me. And I tell everybody, listen, I respect firefighters. I never want to be a firefighter. I didn't even like that side of the port authority, uh, but I never wanted to burn alive. And this was, was about to happen. I mean, these fireballs are dropping in and they're rolling toward me. And I knew once they caught my uniform, it, it, it could be over. And I kept yelling, Sarge, there's fireballs coming in. He tried his best to keep me focused. Like, do something. I'm like, you know, what do you do? It's like one of those moments where you're just throwing whatever you can out to give encouragement. I kept trying to throw a little bit of dust on them. Somehow, some way, these balls kept falling, but they kept putting themselves out. They started burning my forearm. I have burns on my forearm from them. But somehow, some way, they, they put themselves out, which is incredible. So time passes a little bit. Then all of a sudden, I hear pow, 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 pow. And I look above me. And I see sparks. When I look over, Dom's gun somehow has gone off now. I don't know whether the fireballs were on it, heated it up, but now, and it's in a position where it's actually shooting up toward me. So 15 rounds are left in this pistol, and they're going off right above me. And I'm like, yeah. so all I could do was take my hand and cover my face. And my thought pattern was, if a round hits my hand, maybe my hand will slow it down. I knew better than that. You know what I mean? We carry hollow points. It's, it's just going to kill me. But again, <laughs> I'm alive. 15 rounds go off. I couldn't believe it. And I'm yelling to the Sarge, like, Tom's gun went off. You know, I mean, it, this, is, this is crazy. So as time progressed, uh, there was a lot of pain, a lot of prayers, a lot of talking between us. Uh, you know, and Sergeant Glockin was straightforward with me. I said, Sarge, after time, is like, what's going to happen to us? I mean, what do you foresee happening? What's going on? He's like, look, we got crushed. We're probably suffering from compartment syndrome. Basically, your body's going to poison yourself. If they don't get to us by tomorrow morning, we're probably going to die. And I appreciated his honesty. I mean, at least I knew what I was up against. Uh, it didn't make it easier. And I just kept fighting. And I kept, 
you ever been held down? You ever been held down by some buddies or something and you're trying to move out and you can't? I mean, it's so frustrating. Just imagine now it's life and death. That's how I felt. Like I just wanted to blow up, you know, and I couldn't. So at that point, I had to like calm myself down, try to figure things out. So I said, hey, you got a couple options here, right? But I was tired. Our hands started swelling up. Uh, everything was like dust. We looked like statues. And I mean, my hands started swelling up like the Michelin man because the compartment syndrome starts swelling you up. So at that point, I said, all right, let me grab my, my handcuffs. I pulled them out. I opened them up and I figured, hey, because I didn't know what was on me at the time, which was literally a wall. I figured, hey, let me start chipping away, chipping away, and maybe I can get this concrete enough where I can get myself out. I did that. But man, when I tell you, it took everything for me just to take a swing because you're just tired. Uh, I put the handcuffs down. I went back to get them and I couldn't feel them. You know, so they're down by my waist. I can't feel anything. So at that point, I try to rock my weapon out and I did not have the strength to rock it out. So at the time, we carried Smith & Wesson's 5946s. And since our facilities, we sometimes have to roll around with perps. We have a mechanism on those Smith & Wesson's at the time where if I dislodge the magazine, the weapon will not fire. So if anybody grabbed our weapon, we can dislodge the magazine. All they got is a piece of metal in their hand. So at that point, I could not get the, the weapon out. So I dislodged the magazine, not have the magazine. I used that to try to chip away. Put that down. Went back to find it. Can't find it. Can't find it. Another hour goes by. I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I finally rocked the weapon out. And again, so exhausted. So I got the weapon out. And I pointed up to that hole. And I, I'm clicking. You know, I'm pulling the trigger. Nothing. And I realized, hey, dummy, gun's not going to go off. So what do I have in my hand? I got a hammer. Start hitting the concrete again with the with the with the gun. Put it down. Go to pick it up again. Can't find it. It was so frustrating. So this goes on for hours at a time, and uh, you know it gets really bad down there. Really, really bad. Where um, I just want to die. And this is the most important part of this story that I tell everybody is, I reach a point after talking with Sergeant McLaughlin, and and you know we're going back and forth. We're keeping each other awake. Uh, I'm yelling darkness is coming down uh i just hit a point where i said i wanted to die so i made my peace with god i said god thank you for 33 great years thank you for my beautiful wife thank you for four great years of my little girl bianca i said i'm gonna ask you for two things the first one is somehow some way when i get to heaven because i felt everybody's going to heaven that day because these cowards attacked innocent human beings that were just going to work trying to make better lives for their families I said, when I get to heaven, let me somehow, some way be able to see my little girl uh, be born. That's all I wanted. You know, and I felt so bad I wasn't going to be there for my wife, Allison. And the second thing I said, God, when I get to heaven, and I said, man, I just want a glass of water. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. I was yep. so thirsty. And I remember just saying, that's all I want. So I closed my eyes and I tell people, listen, again, I don't preach religion. I have my faith. I closed my eyes and I just wanted to die. I wanted just the pain to be gone. We had been crushed. We had lost teammates. I had been burnt. I had been shot at. I was physically, emotionally just drained. So I closed my eyes. And like I said, I don't preach religion, but I have, you could call it a dream, you could call it a vision. I have a vision of a person coming toward me with a white glowing robe over his left shoulder is a in the distance, a tranquil little lake with trees around. Over his right shoulder is a tall endless sea of grass. 
and he's coming toward me, no face, brown hair. So I know who it is. To me, it's Jesus. And it's okay if you laugh at this point. I was told people because I look at a piece came over him. And what has he got in his hand? A bottle of water. I don't know if it was Avion or what it was, Poland Springs, but <laughs> I just remember thinking to myself, oh my God, he's got water for me. I snapped out of that with a fire in my belly. And as I said, with some colorful words to my sergeant, um, I don't know, can you curse on here? Oh, oh yeah. absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, 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 <laughs> well, still, you know, just in case the kids, but I did. I, I snapped out of that and I said, I said, Sarge, we're going to get out of this fucking hellhole or we're going to die trying. Because at that moment, I realized one thing. If I would have given up, I would have given up on my sergeant because I was close to that hole and I got a big mouth and nobody would be able to hear him because he was 15, back, uh, 15 feet further down. If I would have given up, I would have given up on my family. I didn't fight hard enough to get home to my wife and my kids. If I had given up, I would have given up on my country. The terrorists, the cowards would have won. But most of all, if I would have given up, I would have given up on myself. And there's a certain piece that came over me, and I tell people that today, that if I'm going to die, or if I'm not going to make my goal, I'm going to get everything I got. So if I die, I can go out with a peace knowing that I did everything I could. And I see so many people that are cancer patients, people have terminal illnesses that have that attitude. Like, you know what? I'm going to die, but I'm going to go out my way. I'm going to go out fighting. And it's, it's almost like I can die with a smile on my face. Like, I did it my way. Like that Frank Sinatra song, right? Yeah. But it's important because I want to tell people that when you find yourself in a dark, dark place, you give it your all. You give it everything you have. And you'd be surprised what you can dig out of yourself. Because now for the next several hours, we had to survive. It was not easy. It was horrific. I wouldn't wish this upon anybody. And at 8 o'clock that night, I hear in the distance, United States Marine Corps. Can anybody hear us? And I'm thinking, the Corps is here. We're at war. You know, it was two Marine reservists with a civilian. And I could hear them in the distance. Somehow, somewhere, they broke through the lines and were crazy enough to get in there. Thank goodness. And I started, I started yelling, help, help, you know, PAPD officers down. They made their way to me. Now, I didn't know there was a small hole to my right side and they were shining a flashlight down and I'm yelling at them. I'm like, please don't leave me. I said, I said, I was in the Navy. I was just trying to say whatever to make sure they didn't leave. And they're like, no, no, man, we're Marines. We're not going to leave you. And that gave me such encouragement. But at the same time, I was still in fear because now we're going on a couple minutes. They're shining a light on my hand. They can't see me. I'm waving my hand. They cannot see me because we look like the concrete. So, like I said, I was, I was so thirsty. I had no spit, but somehow, some way, I had enough spit that I put it right here on the palm of my hand and I waved slowly. And the one guy said, I got you. And I'm like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. So, next thing you know, uh, the civilian runs down the pile, literally in the epicenter, and bumps into uh, ESU truck one and says, hey, man, there's a couple cops up here. They're, they're, they're trapped. They sent the cavalry, you know, and uh, Scott Strauss, who led my operation with Patty McGee, another ESU officer, and a civilian, a civilian who was a recovering alcoholic, came off the street, who was a, uh, a previous a paramedic, said, hey, I'll give some medical aid. These three guys jump into a hole and put their lives on the line. For the next three hours, they're working on me. I remember when they first got in there, uh, it was so tight. All I could see were two bald heads. It was Scott Strauss and this guy, Chuck. And Patty McGee was back where the elevator shaft had busted, and they were starting to pass concrete to him. They literally had to do everything by hand. 
uh, by that time now they were starting to form a line. I think, I think it was like 700 people long to get to us. And, um, and everything that they asked for was broken. You know, by the time it got there, it was broken. When we asked for water, uh, most people drank it on the way out. So it wasn't no water by the time it got to us. But I remember when they first got to me, Scott touches me and I started like hyperventilating. Like, it's almost like I wanted to give myself to him. I was so exhausted. And I started hyperventilating at the point. I thought I was giving myself a heart attack. And he said, he goes, hey, bro, you got to calm down. You got to stay focused. I need you. So, you know, when you're in a, in a fight for your life, you got to stay focused the whole way. You just can't give up. And they calmed me down. And I remember the first time he touched me, it was so painful. I yelled so loud. And I remember him kind of pausing. And I thought to myself, All right, Will, you better eat this pain because every time he touches you, if you yell, it's making it harder for him. I don't know how I did it, man. I just started biting my tongue and he started working on me. Uh, you know, we were into it about, a, let's say, a good hour and a half because it took three hours to get me out where they had doctors standing by to cut our legs off and they were taking a long time. And I said, Hey, you need to get to my partner. Uh, and, and, you know, I told him cut my left leg off because I figured, Hey, I could see the hole. <laughs> I'll live without the left leg. Just get me out. And Scott said, no, man, we're going to get you out on a hole. At this time, they were being ordered by their superiors to leave us because it was encroaching fire. Uh, I can't tell you how many times that night they said, you got to leave these guys. And they all said, no, we'll die with them. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and I kept saying, hurry up because you got to get to my partner. And in my mind, I'm not thinking sergeant, you know, I'm not going to the gene command. I'm just like, get my partner. They thought I was talking about Dominic. Sergeant McLaughlin, who was yelling all night, the moment they got there, shut up. He never said one word. He ate the pain. Finally, <laughs> Sergeant McLaughlin out of nowhere scares the hell out of these guys. He's like, how's it going over there? They're like, holy shit, who's that? <laughs> They were like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I said, that's my partner. And they're like, I could see. I, I couldn't really see them, but I could feel it. Like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? And I said, like, that's my partner, Sergeant McLaughlin. And then a little bit more encouragement came because at that point, Sergeant McLaughlin crossed trains with the SWAT guys from the NYPD. He would always teach them how to repel in the elevator shafts. So they said, McLaughlin, you know, John McLaughlin. And these guys are both, you know, uh, white Irish guys. So Patty McGee's like, Irish eyes? And he goes, yeah. So they actually knew each other. Not well, but they cross-trained. Yeah, they knew so each other. A, yeah, so a feeling of me like, oh shit, okay, not only are they cops, but they know my sergeant. You know, So you're getting that little extra like, hey, you know, you're going to take care of us. But it was bad. It was pretty bad. And so they took three hours to get me out. Um, they finally put me on a Stokes basket. I said, Sarge, hold on. They pulled me out. And when they pulled me out, it's the first time I cried that night. I didn't cry when I got hurt. I didn't cry when I lost the guys. I cried when they pulled me out of that hole and I looked up and I could see the moon. You know, it was a clear, beautiful night. I could see the smoke, but I didn't see the buildings. So I said, where is everything? And the firefighter said, it's all gone, kid. That's the first time I cried that night. They started dragging me down this uh, long line, got me to the ambulance, threw me on the ambulance, um, took me to Bellevue Hospital. And that's the second time I cried that night. Because, you know, as a cop or firefighter, if you're injured and the hospital is busy, just because you're a first responder, you hope, hey, you know, someone will go take a peek at you because you're a good guy, good person. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, there must be thousands of people injured. I'm hoping that they'll be able to see me. And they pulled me off and it was all these doctors and nurses standing around Bellevue Hospital. That's where they take the prison in the United States if he's heard in New York City. So it's a great hospital. And I said, where is everybody? 
they're like, you're it. This is about now, I think a little bit after 11 o'clock, 11.15 or so. And I started crying again because I saw how many people were in, inside that mall level, you know, and it's just like, I felt like we failed. I said, man, you know, so many people. At that point, they rushed me in and it was like bees on me, you know, people all over. The one thing I remember, and it's always funny because uh, this is beautiful, heavy set woman. She was just like my mother, rubbing my head, saying, we're going to take care of you, baby. Doctors around me. And this one young doctor gets on top of me and goes, you're going to feel this. I said, what? You know, he shoved the catheter right into me. I was like, oh, you know, I mean, I felt that one. I felt mm-hmm. all the pain. And then I went out. I was out. Uh, when I woke up, um, I was in the ICU unit. I literally could see my hands. I mean, I was like six times the size of my body. Uh, they had a tube down my throat. I couldn't talk, which was very frustrating. There were literally pebbles coming out of my lungs. Uh, and my wife was there, you know, seven, you know, seven months pregnant. I couldn't believe it. It took, I think it took almost to the end of that week for them to tell me that, you know, how many guys had died. We lost 37 that day because, again, the Port Authority, it's owned and operated, the World Trade is owned and operated by the Port Authority. We have a command there. Our, basically, my whole academy staff was on the Jersey side, which is right through the Holland Tunnel, right by the, by the World Trade Center. They had come over. We lost from our director to our chief of police, uh, high-ranking lieutenants, captains, uh, and a whole slew of cops, 37 of them, four of them were my classmates. Um, so I think they took till the end of the week to show me a poster of how many people died. I was just like, just beyond, you know, it just didn't sink in. You know, my sergeant came out the next morning after being buried 22 hours. It took 18 uh, cops and firefighters rotating all night long, literally by hand, getting everything out. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, and again, it took a year later to find out that we're the two guys that are the only two people to survive from under it. And uh, it, it's 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 miraculous. You know, since then, I've been blessed to be able to speak to people about the event. And the way it started was really my next door neighbor in Clifton. I wasn't even walking yet. Said, can you come talk to our our school? And I'm like, talk about what? I really had no idea. And he said, they're scared to get on planes. So the story I just shared with you brought it down a little bit for kids, but I walked right. in there, put my uniform in. And what inspired me too, was my friend, Antonio Rodriguez, who passed his wife. She told me that her kids were afraid to get on a plane and they needed to go to Portugal because they were going to honor Antonio in Portugal in his hometown. And she said, if we don't get on this plane, we disgrace your father because we have allowed fear to control our lives, which in turn means the cowards, the terrorists, they won. And that's what I told the kids. I said, listen, we're all going to die one day. We got an expiration date on us. But the moment that we start living our lives in fear, fear has won. And that's the way we don't let the terrorists win, the cowards win, because we're going to live our life. We're going to live in freedom. We're not going to fear you, you know? Um, So I've been blessed to be able to talk to people. And I don't do it for a living. It's all word of mouth. I keep, every year I get calls and it's because someone heard me speak at one place Another person wants me to come here. Another person wants me to come here. Uh, uh, one of the things that I didn't realize off the bat was probably, you know, I was dealing with my injuries. So uh, the PTSD, which is bad, uh, the post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, people used to call it shell shock back in the day when they didn't know how to diagnose it. Um, it's bad. And I always tell people it's something that you live with and something that the day I'm done with PTSD is the day they bury me. Uh, I had to learn to live with it. And I didn't even realize what was happening to me. I was angry. I was, I was very angry. Like, 
to a point where I shouldn't be carrying a weapon. You know, it was that's how angry I would get angry about the silliest things. Uh, can't find a remote control. Couldn't do this fast enough. I was just blowing up. And I remember uh, one day I was mad. I think it was because of remote control. And we were in Clifton. And uh, I love my wife, man. Let me tell you, she's 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 an angel. What she's put up with me. And uh, I remember just getting mad and picking up a shoe. And I was going to throw a shoe at her head. That's how angry I was. I don't even know why. I just she was the the target of my my rage. And I remember about to throw the shoe. And I said, "Bro, this ain't you. This is not who you are." And I remember just feeling embarrassed. I threw the shoe down. I wobbled out with my cane. Got in my pickup and I went up to the country because, as you guys know, I'm a big hunter. And I sat in this field that I used to hunt uh, on a wildlife management area. I didn't have private property back then. And I just sat there and I really thought about things. And I said to myself, if I am not a good father, if I am not a good husband, as we all know, kids that see have parents who are alcoholics, drug abusers, physically abuse them usually carry that on to their children. I didn't want that. And I felt that if I failed in those occupations as a father, as a husband, terrorists won. They have now touched another generation of Americans who might be screwed up. So I went home, I went upstairs, and I said to my four, well, no, she was now five, five, six. I said, Bianca, I said, does daddy yell a lot? And she said, yeah, daddy. You yell a lot. You scare me. And I said at that moment, I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with this. And I did. I started dealing with this. Uh, and I, I, and forgive me for say, uh, for skipping a big part, but after 9/11, uh, November 26th is my birthday. My wife was seven months pregnant. Like I said on September 11th, uh, my my daughter Olivia was born on my birthday. That was my birthday gift uh, from my wife, which is something that you know it, it means the world to me. But at the same time, that PTSD was touching these young girls. And so I made it a point to, to address it. Uh, it was not easy. I had to talk to several different people where I felt comfortable. Uh, you know, that's why I tell people, listen, you know, go talk to a therapist, go talk to a qualified friend. And even that person, you might not feel comfortable with. It might take you a while to find that other human being who you feel comfortable with. That's not sitting there just staring at you, asking too many weird questions. You yep. got to find that person, but they're out there. They're out there. And that's the main trick to, to that, you know, is finding help. And what I tell people is this, I tell kids, especially, I said, listen, life is short. So you got to do anything you can to better your life, be happier. So let's say you're lucky enough to live to 90 years of age. Part of the time you're in diapers. If you reach 90, you're probably going to be in diapers again. So there's 365 days in a year. Multiply that by 90. That's how many days you got on this earth if you're lucky enough to hit 90. I don't even tell people, you do the math, 365 times 90. Look at how many days you've already been on this earth. And you ask yourself, wow, what am I doing with myself? So do something positive. you know. And I tell people, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be a celebrity. All you have to do is be who you are. And by you being a good person, raising a family, uh, you never know. You might inspire your children to something greater. Maybe they're the ones who are going to uh, cure cancer. Maybe one of them is going to be president one day. I said, but we all have to do our part to do, be the best people we can be and love our country because 
that's why they attacked us because they hate our freedoms because we have freedoms like none other in the world. You know, like what's going on today with this cancel culture, that's bullying. And I want to let everybody know, for me, the word evil encompasses a lot of things. And I'm sorry, I'm of the age in the 80s and, you know, we, we were just told things and you had thick skin. End of story. But evil to me encompasses bullying, uh, racism, murder, rape, being a bad person. That is the evil because it's been with us since the beginning of the time. It will be with us till the end of time. A for effort. Yeah, we want to end racism. We want to earn, uh, end bullying. It's not going away, people. But what we could do is make sure you have time to sit down with your kids every day at dinner. Shut the cell phone off. Talk to your kids. Know what's going on in their lives. Teach them. Simple. Treat people the way you want to be treated. I don't care what color, where they come from. If someone treats you the way you want to be, uh, you treat people the way you want to be treated, we're better off. You know, and that's why I always love the saying by Edmund Burke, all that evil needs to triumph is for good men to stand by and do nothing. And there will always be good men and women to do something. But, you know, the, the, where we're at today, uh, I think it's a disservice to the Americans that died on 9-11 with this cancel culture and all this craziness, because, you know, we live in a country where freedom of speech, even though you might not agree with it, is something important. For those of us who have traveled around the world, I tell people, most people that talk about, you know, oh, well, you know, cancel culture this or this person shouldn't say that. I guess you haven't traveled because there's countries you go to, you'll disappear. In this country, you can stand up, give your opinion and know that, hey, I have that right here. I might not agree with you, but you know what? That's what I fought for. That's what I served in this military for. So you can have opposing views that you don't have in Russia or China, you know, and I try to tell kids today, please, 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 and educators especially, teach the American history that I was taught. Make sure we teach history because we are bound to repeat it. You know, when we start restricting people's rights, you better go look at Nazi Germany. You know, and I hear people, oh, well, you can't compare it to that. Yeah. Well, you didn't Probably read your history. familiar. Yeah. And I said, you know, so I tell people, listen, understand that our Constitution has lasted this long. And those men were very smart in what they did, you know? And I remind people, listen, uh, Rome fell in 400 years. We're halfway there. Let's not do, you know, let's not be Rome. Let's be smarter than that. Let's make sure that the freedoms that so many people have died for and bled for, you know, that's the way we honor people. And that's the way I tell people, for me as a survivor, the way I honor those that we lost on 9-11 is by living as an American. Uh, exercising my freedoms, uh, being blessed every day to get up and just breathe. I mean, when I drive my truck, I put my hand out the window and I could feel that wind hitting my hand because I know my buddies were buried. They can't feel that, you know? So for me, I think it's important that people um, understand that uh, this 20th anniversary is a great time to honor those we lost that day, understand what was attacked that day uh, and do our part to um, give that, loving feeling that america deserves the red white and blue you know i tell people uh am i opposed to kneeling absolutely i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry but there's a way you can uh, talk about your cause without disrespecting our flag you know and i'm on the same page like with other players like jim brown you know what i i hear you there's problems that have to be fixed but we don't desecrate our american flag 
because those people that are kneeling, they haven't fought for us. They haven't bled with us. And I tell this to everybody, when it comes to racism, I served in the Navy with all different people and I love them all. I love them all. You know, when it came time that we were in a situation, it didn't matter what color, where you came from. It was just, we're Americans. We come together. And I want to, that's the one thing I, I hate to say that, you know, what I wish I, everybody could feel today is September 12th. Yes. Everybody just stopped. Mm-hmm. Everybody stopped and came together. Sorry. And let me tell you, Bellevue hospital, one of the busiest hospitals in New York, where you got shooting stabbings for two weeks, two weeks, it seems like crime stopped. There wasn't a shooting victim, a stabbing victim, an abused victim coming into the ICU. Two weeks later, the first stabbing victim came in, but for two weeks, <laughs> which is two, I still, unheard of. I still, yeah, it's, it's, I still remember them bringing them in. They say, oh, well, two weeks. But for two weeks, people just loved each other, you know, and they didn't care where you came from, what color you're from, you were. Uh, and I wish that people would, would, would feel that again. And, you know, uh, I'm hoping that that's something that I can bring back. And I don't know if you want me to talk about these books now or later, but, you know, that's what I'm doing this year on the 20th anniversary, doing my part to try to insp- inspire kids uh, to love our country, to not give up on themselves and to understand that the freedoms you have in this country are special, you know, and, uh, uh, and also to deal with my fellow Americans and human beings who have served in the military as first responders, or just people who are going through tough times, whether it be drug abuse, whether it be cancer, whether it be anxiety. Uh, I have two different projects to cover all those gamuts and I'm proud of them, uh, you know, and I hope that people will reach out to both uh, books that I've written. One's a children's book and uh, the other one is a uh, is the book on really learning to live after tragedy, learning to deal with the PTSD. So, uh, you know, if you guys have questions before I get into this, fire away. No, feel free to share them, man. I, I, I think... While you're on, we're, we're I'm, still I'm kind of speechless. Yeah, yeah, I'm lost without words, man. <laughs> well, listen, I'm I'm, re- I'm really proud of this book. Um, so this is a kids' book. So I've been, so you guys, uh, I don't know if you know, but there was a movie made about us called World Trade Center. There's the poster right behind it by Oliver Stone. Um, and uh, for years, I've been trying to write a book on what happened to me. Uh, and really, I was kind of trying to combine it where, hey, I want to write about me coming here in this country. Uh, my trials and tribulations on becoming a police officer it took me six years to become a cop here. Uh, it's very sought after, but I got it. I made my goal. Uh, and then what happened on 9-11, but more importantly, what happened after that? And I tried doing it for years, but most of the publishing houses are like, hey, listen, we love your story, uh, but they made a movie about you. But I said, yeah, but th- the movie doesn't really go into who I am. You know, I wanted more about that. And finally, last year, I was actually on the couch and I was getting, uh, had, a shoulder surgery right after the bow season of uh, 2019. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I got to do something on the 20th anniversary to help people. I want people to be helped somehow, some way. So I called a buddy of mine whose brother is a big hunter and a good friend of mine. Well, my buddy's a, a doctor of psychology. So I called him up. His name is Mike Motes. I said, Mike, this is what I want to do. I just want to write about the event, but more importantly, what happened after, how I have come to a good point in my life. And he thought, man, that's a great idea. Write a book where people who might not go to therapy, might not want to talk to anybody, can pick the book up, read what happened to me. But then I talk about the bad crap that I did, the stuff that the anger, uh, 
man, I hate to say it, but there was a day that I grabbed my 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 gift, my birthday gift. She was like three, and I grabbed it like I was going to punch her. You know, I'm embarrassed about that, but I realized that that's the PTSD. So I want to share those ugly stories, but also share how I came to be happy. You know, and it's a struggle. Like I said, you deal with PTSD every day. So we got together. We started writing that book. And then um, along the way, I have a lot of kids that say, hey, man, we'd love to see something from you from a children's book. I'm thinking, where am I going to write a children's <laughs> book from, right? Like, come on, you know? I'm just like you guys. Like, hey, give me out. You want to go hunting, you know? Right. <laughs> so uh, I actually have – I had lunch with uh, – my youngest daughter has a friend that she cheers with, and their parents are great people. So uh, we're having lunch one day, and, and I, I don't know how it came about. They said, oh, a children's book would be fun for you, or it'd be a good story. Because the wife always says, you're so inspirational. I said, thank you. I said, but I'm not going to write a children's book. She, was a, she said, you should talk to my brother. Uh, he's written a couple children's books. I said, get out of here. Call this guy up. His name's Chuck. And uh, tell him the idea. Uh, tell him what I'd like the cover look like. Next thing you know, does a cover. It brought it to life. I'm like, holy cow. So we're very proud that the uh, children's book is going to be, and I'm going to talk about that first, is going to be launched May 3rd. Actually, you guys are the first people to know about this. We just kind of set the date uh, yesterday. We're still tweaking a couple of things. We're doing this book in English and Spanish. Um, and the book is called Immigrant American Survivor, A Little Boy Who Grew Up to Be All Three. And it's written by me and Charles Riccardi. So I don't know if you can, you guys see that book there? Yep. Oh, yeah. Perfectly clear. That's awesome. So, you know, it shows that I come from Colombia, and uh, but I love this country. You know, um, I got the... The Trade Center there, I got the American flag. And the book actually follows me through coming to this country, uh, be, being the love I, that's instilled in me by my parents. I'll show you a quick glimpse of this part. You know, uh, going around the world. I don't know if you guys can see that. Yep. Yep. That's one little glimpse there. And it really encompasses what America is about for me, you know. And uh, it's a book that I want to I wanna be able to inspire children with that, they can pick this book up and they're going to say, hey, yeah, it's OK to be an immigrant. Uh, shows how we came here. Shows, uh, again, my parents, what they instilled in me. Shows my military service. Shows surviving the World Trade Center. But most importantly, it shows never to give up. And that's what I want to teach kids is like, listen, follow your dreams. Don't give up and keep going no matter what happens. But most, most importantly is don't give up on yourself. So I'm really excited about this. This book's going to come out uh, May 3rd. It'll be available on Barnes and Nobles and uh, Amazon. Uh, th this is a hardcover. I know the hardcovers are going to be on Barnes and Noble because Amazon does not cover children's books hardcovers. But I hope that people go out there and check this out. We're going to have a Facebook go live uh, probably around April 26th. So uh, Immigrant American Survivor, a little boy who grew up to be all three. I'm very proud of it. Uh, we have some great. Uh, people have read it, uh, pull quotes from some very qualified individuals that love it. Uh, the other book, which uh, we're still writing, by the way, this one doesn't come out till August. Uh, it's called Sunrise Through the Darkness, a survivor's account of learning to live again beyond 9-11. And this is the book right here. I love this, this cover, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, Sunrise Through the Darkness, the way I feel about it is uh, when you have bad PTSD, when you have cancer, when you're in, in a dark place, I want people to understand that you got to keep pushing toward that sunrise, you know, and through the darkness, there's always going to be sunrise. Uh, so this book's going to be available uh, probably by mid August. Uh, we're still kind of finishing up things on the tail end of it, but I'm, 
Uh, you guys actually are the very first people that have seen this cover, to be honest with you. Uh, again, this book will be out sometime in August. Uh, you know, you'll be seeing a lot of this book coming out, you know, as we get closer, I'm sure, with interviews that I do with uh, some of the news outs outlets and everything like that. But this this book I'm really proud of. I don't know if you guys can see it. Uh, yeah. There's a trade center right there. This oh, yeah. A trade center. It's a beautiful yeah. photo. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing it's amazing picture. But uh, the words are important. But once you, you know, I mean, sunrise to the darkness. For those of us that have had to deal with darkness, you get it. I don't really have to say much. And I hope that the people that pick up the book are going to find it to be not only something that um, teaches them about a person that survived a, a terrible event, but teaches them how they can re uh, regain their happiness. Because I've had friends that have given up on themselves unfortunately you know we have uh, veterans i don't have to say you know 22 a day uh, and i'll be honest with you the one thing that really pushed me to do this book was 2000 i think it was 2008 uh our movie had come out i was getting a lot of, of people asking me to come speak fairly dickinson university in new jersey always asked me to come and speak and they have a group called latino promise it's a lot of hispanic kids that are going to college uh i would always make exactly was the, the, at the height of the war. Um, I remember always kind of looking in the crowd and I would say, hey, you know, who was in theater? And I kind of said it that way because we all know guys that, you know, are in the military and, and God bless everybody that goes in the military, but you get those people who like to talk a lot of crap. Yep. And I've always found the people that talk a lot of crap really didn't do crap. You know, the people who have seen some ugly stuff, they really don't like to talk about it. So I kind of just say, who was in theater? And I could see people kind of look at me and there was that stare like, all right, this guy probably seen something or this girl seen something that you know lives with them today and uh it was one particular marine uh great guy uh, actually colombian too but uh he was in fallujah so you know i do my speech and you know people love it i come back the following year and at the end of that speech i see him in the back and he stands up and he goes i don't have a question uh i just want to come back here and i want to share something with the class i want I feel it's my obligation to tell people to listen to Will and what he said about faith, hope, and love. And, you know, what I, what I preach about, you know, not giving up on yourself and that you deserve happiness. And he said, you know, like four or five months after he heard me speak, uh, he had a pistol in his mouth. He was going to kill himself. Uh, you know, he had really bad PTSD. And uh, he said, Will, I was going to kill myself. And I thought about what you said. Let me tell you, blew me off my, my feet. I mean, I was in tears. Everybody was in tears. He came down, gave me a big hug. And, uh, you know, we've been friends ever since. Just a great, great guy, Marine, who fought for our country. And he said, Will, thank you. I needed to hear that because if I didn't hear that, I probably wouldn't be here today. So that's really why I really wanted to write this book, Sunrise uh, Through the Darkness, because I still want to, in my heart, I'm still a cop, you know. And uh, if I can help one person, which I know I've been blessed to have helped several people, uh, is just something that I can leave behind on this earth that someone can pick that book up, read it and see what I went through, the horrors I went through, the struggles of learning to walk again, the struggles of dealing with the PTSD. But today I'm happy, you know, uh, it was only a week ago, <laughs> my daughter killed a big gobbler that I called in for her. And, you know, that's priceless. That's priceless. And I want everybody that's going through a hard time, no matter what it is, whether it be hunting, uh, playing soccer, tennis, knitting get to that point in your life again where you're happy because you deserve it i don't care what anybody says you know there's a lot of haters out there and don't give those haters the time 
And the biggest hate is that darkness, whatever it is, drug abuse, you know, cancer, uh, PTSD, uh, not believing in yourself. I want to make sure that people understand that you've got to fight through that stuff, you know, and I'm here as an example of that, you know, and uh, am I perfect? Absolutely. There's days that I waste just like everybody else. But what I try to do every day is live the best life I can. And I'll, t- I'll tell you something. One of the main firefighters from the FDNY um, who led the operation at the Oklahoma bombing. And for you guys that don't know what the Oklahoma bombing was, look it up. Uh, it's one of the first, you know, real big acts of terrorism. Unfortunately, it was a homegrown terrorist, but uh, they sent an FDNY unit out there to help the recovery. And this guy was an expert. He died under Tower 2 on 9-11 because nobody thought those towers were coming down. Like I said, my sergeant said, if I thought those towers were coming down, I would have never taken you there. Nobody thought they were coming down. So I ended up meeting his wife maybe a year after at an Easter Seal Foundation raising money for 9-11 families. And she comes up to me. And I had really bad survivor's guilt at the time. I mean, you know, again, why am I here? So many people aren't. And this beautiful lady comes up to me and says, you know, I'm so-and-so. And I knew her husband was. And I didn't know what to say to her. And she said, do me a favor. I heard you had a beautiful little girl named Olivia. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, do what the middle of her name says for, for yourself, for my husband, for everyone who died that day. And I'm looking at it like, man, I'm just a stupid cop. I don't know what you mean. So if you think about it, oh, live, yeah, live. And man, she just flattened me out. So basically she's telling me, live, live for yourself, live for those you love, live for those we lost. And that's what I try to do every single day is live, you know, and uh, you know, I'm blessed. I, I love to bow hunt. I love to turkey hunt. Um, I do a lot of that, you know, and I have a wife that actually supports me because she's the one that got me into it. So I always say to her, it's your fault. That's a good wife. I'm a kid from Hackensack, New Jersey, man. I, I played soccer and did karate and I met her, you know, uh, you know, when I met her, I took her out on our third day and, you know, being a Navy guy, I was a gunner's mate. So, you know, I was all in the weapons and I did weapons. And I said, let me take you to range. And I put a 92 Beretta full size pistol in her hand. It was really a reason for me to put my arms around her. And show her uh-huh. how to shoot. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, guess what? Next thing you know, she shoots 15 rounds at like 10 yards and hoops and like this. I'm like, Oh wow, that's good. And she said, uh, you want to try something cool? And she said, uh, you ever shot a bow? And I said, you know, I've never, I've always wanted to had a, na- a chief in the Navy trying to sell a bow off to us. But we're like, we don't know what to do with that. And then she, she let me go shoot her bow for the first time. I was hooked. forget about it. it was, it's, uh, it's just in my, in my DNA now. So uh, I'm blessed to have her uh, supporting me, supports me every single day. I have two beautiful girls. Both went, uh, uh, well, one graduated from Auburn University. The other one is in Auburn University. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of like that weird Spanish guy. I, I drive a pickup. Uh, I try to play the guitar. I got a bum wheel. I hunt, but I can still dance salsa. And uh, they've accepted me down south. Like, I, I got to tell you, I've, I've met so many good people through the hunting world. It's, it's ridiculous. I've, I've met from just regular folk to celebrities, if, if you want to call them that in, in the hunting world. And the, the best thing, a perfect example, I, I just went to Alabama. Um, I asked a buddy of mine who's a trooper, say, hey, man, because right, trying to find turkeys, you need dirt. Right. You need dirt to find turkeys. Uh, you know anybody? He's like, yeah, you know, I got this guy and he's pretty famous down here. He owns a couple restaurants and, you know, but, and I know who he is. He's been on Food Network and, but man, we're driving in the truck. I meet him that first morning. Yeah, I say, you own this restaurant. That's cool, man. You know, 
but at the end of the day, we're just we're turkey hunting. Yeah. We're turkey hunting. I've been, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of hunting with Ted Nugent, uh, Fred Eichler, uh, you know, uh, Cuz Strickland. And at the end of the day, when you're in camp, I don't care how famous or who you are. We're just, just we're hunting, man. Just that's all we out care about. That, that's it. And that's the, the beautiful thing that I've, for the hunting world has brought to me was with, um, again, I'm blessed. The attention that I've gotten because of 9-11 has afforded me uh, the time and the connections to do something I enjoy. Uh, but what I try to do is anytime that I'm with somebody, I try to inspire people. Um, they're, they're always like, I'm always, you know, blessed that they always honor to hunt with you. I was like, no, bro, I'm just, it's an honor to hunt with you. I'm, it's an honor to be alive, you know? And I just try to absorb every moment the most I can, you know, that hunt with my daughter two weeks ago, it was an afternoon hunt. We set up, she brought a friend. Uh, who's a veteran because he works for the Veterans Resource Center down in Auburn. Uh, he'd never been on a turkey hunt. He's a deer hunter. I said, well, it's going to start off slow. We did start off slow, but we got up to a spot and, you know, it was boarding a, a neighbor's property. And, you know, I'm calling, calling 45 minutes in there. Beep, beep, beep. You know, I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's a bird. Next thing you know, the hands are kicking in. We watched these birds run from 300 yards into a field. This kid got a show. Bird comes in, breaks, comes to my Jake. My daughter kills him at like 15 yards. I was just like, you know, and it's those moments that I don't know how to express to people. I just want to bottle them up. I want to be able to yes. experience that every single day, mm -hmm. you know, and whether it be my kid killing a bird, a buddy killing a bird or a deer. When I take people hunting, it's those moments. They just, you wish you can bottle them up. And that's what I tell people. That's why I go back to life is short. So whatever it is you do, for me, it's hunting. So whatever it is you do, whether, like I said, you want to play tennis, you want to go swimming, you want to go sailing, do it because before you know it, one day you're not going to be able to. And try to hold on to those memories because they're so precious. Don't, don't ever take life for granted. That's the main message I have for people. This has been I'm, – I'm still kind of lost for words. I, I don't know about you, Stephen. Yeah, I'm brother. completely like totally and utterly lost, man. It's, it's a – it's, I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm so, I, it, it's so embarking, like wh what you've been through and all this. It's just, it's incredible that you've come out in such a positive attitude and all of the things that you've gone, like the PTSD and all this other stuff and, and your goal to inspire other people. It's just amazing that, that you're just so positive and inspiring. Well, I, I owe that a lot to my parents. I mean, you know, they're hardworking people and one of the things that my mom always taught me, uh, she was never for affirmative action. Now, she's a minority. She just felt that, listen, you're as good as the next person. I don't care what color skin you are. If you work hard, you will produce, uh, your, you, you will produce your goals. You will achieve your goals. You know? uh, and sometimes maybe you won't achieve that particular goal. It takes you another goal. My mom just always said, don't, be, don't use a crutch. And that's the main thing I tell people. Uh, please, I could sit here every day and say, oh, my leg hurts or this or that. And people do do it. We all know people like that. Don't be that person that uses a crutch. Be that person who says, you know, I'm going to figure out a way to do things. Let me tell you something. Uh, part of the PTSD for me was just learning to live again. You know, I always did my own laundry since the military. So I had to buy new washers and dryers that allow me physically to do that. I remember buying different cars because I was still trying to do things like I did prior to 9-11, before my injuries. And I was having a hard time. And it took me a while to figure that out. Uh, and what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that no matter where you are, just roll with the punches and you will figure things out. It might take you a while because it doesn't come overnight. 
that's why I try to share my experiences so I, other people don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, I got a bad leg. I can never run after my kids, but I could skip pretty fast. You know, uh, <laughs> you buying a vehicle, buy a vehicle that allows you to accomplish your goals. There's a lot of vehicles out there. Um, you know, again, my, my washer and dryer, I couldn't, bending over was hard for my legs. So now I got a front loader. So you start learning things from other people instead of you reinventing the wheel, make it harder for yourself. And you'll see that once you, knowledge is power. Basically, that it comes down to. If you're injured, if you have those struggles, seek people out that have had the same issues as you because you will find that you'll have walls you can get through easier when you're armed with that information. I didn't have that. Uh, and again, uh, PTSD, especially for men, is a macho thing. You know, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm a tough guy. Well, I tell people this. You know what tough is? Tough is doing what you have to do when you have to do it. And if it means for your health and the health of those that you love around you, that's what being tough is, is going out there and saying, yeah, uh, maybe I'm embarrassed that people know I'm talking to a therapist. So what? So what? You know, those people that if they're looking bad upon you, they're not part of your life. You want to be able to say to your wife, your kids, hey, I'm okay. I know when, for me, the anger, I know when I'm getting angry, I go for a walk. I do something physical to let that out. It took me a while to figure that out. Because if not, what happens, that rage blows up. And same oh, yeah. thing, I talked, to, I talked to my friend Mike. I said, I don't know. I was never really depressed. I was angry. And he goes, hey, it's just the opposite. You know, when you're depressed, you go into this dark hole. And, uh, you know, and I don't know which is worse, to be honest with you. I always say, I, I nor do I want to know. But, you know, is the anger worse or the depression worse? Either way, they both suck. But right. what you have to focus on is you deserve happiness. And I tell people that. I mean, if you follow me on Facebook, I'm always trying to post up positive things. And, you know, it's funny because I get some of my cop friends, they'll bust my, my chops. They're like, ah, oh, here we go again. One of my friends, uh, he's really tight. He's like, you know, I just read your post. I want to hang myself. I'm like, come on, man. And the, <laughs> and the same day, and the same day, I'll get a private message from someone who said, hey, I needed that. I'm in yeah. a bad place. Mm -hmm. And, I'll, and you know, then I'll, I'll screenshot it, send it to him. And he's like, you're, you're an asshole. Why you got to make me feel bad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I'm like, because I said, you know what? And, and the funny thing is, I'm not trying to change the world. Uh, just like a police officer on 9-11, man, if you were able to help one person, you did something big. So I use my social media platform. And there are times that I do want to say political things, but I said, I'm going to stay away from that. Yep. Because I want to be that person who inspires somebody. And I can have a post that maybe I repeat six, seven months, eight months down the line. But it might be a new person that reads it. And it might help that person get through the day. And that's the thing I tell my buddy is like, listen, I know you laugh at me because I'm trying to be inspirational. I try to be positive. But, you know, I needed that. I needed that when I was uh, in a bad place. Mm -hmm. And if I can help one person get through the day, I might never know it. I might never know it. But you know what? Someone out there said, hey, I, that person's inspirational quote today helped me. And I get so many of those things. And it's sad, though, because... Uh, to be honest with you, I had one young lady who had sent me, and I know her, and I guess she was going through bad stuff, and and she she'd send me notes, hey man, really today you helped me out, and unfortunately, it didn't end well for her. You know, she ended up taking uh, her life, and that that kills me. It, it shows you that it's real out there. The PTSD, the depression, the anxiety, it's something real, and we're not going to win all those battles, but I'll do my best every single day to help somebody win that battle at least one more day one more day till they can find happiness somewhere. And that's what I tell everybody, no matter how bad of a position you're in, please don't give up. Please keep going forward. 
you know, just just please, especially to all our our vets out there, our law enforcement who are dealing with with shit that nobody else wants to deal with. Right. You know, I tell people it's easy to sit back and play Monday night quarterback behind the keyboard. You know, it's like they say when we were kids, right? You know, come come from behind that keyboard. Let's have a fist fight. We'll get it done. Now say it to my face. You know, people don't want to do that. We're social media is a double-edged sword. It has so great a great tool, but uh, it has a dark side to it. You know, oh, yeah. I was listening to Joe. I was listening to Joe Rogan the other day, and he's just like, you know, it's people abuse it in such a way that they shouldn't. Uh, you know, if more people really try to inspire people, uh, we'd be a better off. But I always tell the kids this too. Remember one thing. The news wants you to watch. They want to show you the nasty stuff in the world. They, just imagine if they showed all the good stuff that happens in the world every day. Oh, yeah. It'd be a different world. <laughs> world but not only that, they'd be out of business because people wouldn't be looking. They wouldn't be watching. For the last week and a half since I went down to Alabama for, uh, for their opening week, uh, I didn't watch the news. When I'm in hunting camp or I'm going away hunting, I don't watch the news. I keep up with a little bit on social media, but I don't get into it. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, man, you feel really good. When I'm in hunting camp with hunting buddies or my daughter and I'm not watching the news because you're hunting early, you're getting some child, you're going back in the afternoon and you're tired. You got to get back up early in the morning. Yep. Ain't no time for the news. Ain't no time for TV. I'm out there with nature, watching that sunrise, hearing those gobblers. And you're just like, man, life is good. You know, so I tell people, give yourself a break sometimes. Try to get positive things. Shut the TV off. Call your mother, call your father. If you're blessed to have them in your life to, today, make sure you always, you know, take that time because it, it goes away so quick where you don't have those loved ones. So, uh, you know, just look at the good things in life because it's out there for you. You don't, don't get caught up in social media all the time. You know, don't take a break from it. it it's okay. You're going to be okay. The world's not going to disappear. It's not going anywhere. It'll still be there. You know what I mean? Absolutely, Will. And, you know, I, I can't thank you enough, man, for doing this with us. It's It's been amazing, dude. And thanks for being a hero and just being an amazing guy. I, You know, I just want to thank you, honestly, from the bottom of my heart. Um, I do have one last question that we ask everybody, sure. and it's probably going to be probably the best answer. I, I'm, I'm going to call um, it right off the bat, right? <laughs> I, one thing we ask everybody is, what drives you outdoors, Will? You know, it, it really is my love for nature. I mean, I've I wish I could have done it before I met my wife because I didn't really start hunting until I was 24, you know, and I, I don't think there's a word for it. It's just, and, and I know you guys are going to laugh, you know, it's not a passion. It's an obsession. It really is. It, like Mossy Oak says, it really is an obsession. I can't get enough of it. Um, whether it be me sitting behind uh, a bow or a shotgun or a rifle or sitting in a blind with somebody I'm taking hunting, it's just, there's just something special about it, something that's indescribable. And it's something that I wish everybody could, could experience. You know, it really teaches you about life. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I've taught my kids is like when I take them hunting, when you take a life, you know, there's a purpose to it. We're going to eat it. This is the cycle of life. Uh, you can see if you wound an animal and you don't find it, you're feeding coyotes, you're feeding foxes. It's a cycle of life. And you can learn so much from the outdoors. You know, it really can. It teaches you patience it teaches you love it teaches you perseverance it teaches you working hard you know I, I i use that example with my kids all the time i said you know when i'm after a big buck and there's been bucks i haven't been able to kill but i'm after them i'm after them i tell my girls and then when i kill them the goal has been reached which is sad at the same time but i tell my girls that you see when dad's after a big buck and i go crazy about i'm working hard i'm checking my cameras you know i'm going out there spending time sitting there i said 
it's a go, but it teaches you so much about life. And I, I wish people would get, you know, more young people involved in the outdoors because the one thing I know, every program that has, especially inner city kids that come out to hunt, they learn so much. It's such an appreciation of life that they take back into the inner cities and they actually look at things differently. You know, they, they, they actually value life more, you know? And uh, so it's something that I, I, I just think is, is a beautiful thing. And I think that's the beauty of nature that keeps me going out there and the lessons it teaches me every single time. Outstanding. I mean, it's a beautiful situation, beautiful story and a beautiful reason. Uh, real quick, before we wrap this thing up, if you could give everybody uh, a heads up on where they can find you, how they can get a hold of you, again, where they can find the books and anything like that. Well, I'm on Facebook. We're going to have a Facebook page for uh, both both books. Uh, again, the uh, Sunrise Through the Darkness is going to be coming out in August. So just keep, uh, you can follow me at uh, Will Jimeno uh, on Facebook or on Wasp Archer on Instagram. Uh, so this book is still being worked on. We want to make it perfect, especially with the advice uh, with my friend, Dr. Mike Motes. So this will be out and this will be out on uh, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And I'm sure a few other places. Uh, and again, uh, immigrant American uh, survivor, little boy who grew up to be all three will be out May 3rd and it'll be available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, we will also have a Facebook page uh, called the uh, immigrant American survivor. So we'd love to see pictures of children uh, reading the book and learning. Uh, and, and, and they learn about 9-11. Again, they learn about not giving up. And they learn about being kind to other people. You know, uh, there's a little bit in there about bullying. There's a little bit about everything here that I hope that people are going to take off uh, to, to teach their kids, to make them stronger. Uh, and that's the main thing. I want people to be stronger. As Americans, we're strong. I feel today there's a question about that. I've been asked by people from around the world what's going on with you guys. And I said, look. I have faith in America. The red, white, and blue, will, she will fly high. We're strong. Uh, when you need us, we're there. Uh, we're going through our own little family feud, I guess, if you will. But I have faith in this country. And I believe that the men and women have served this country, died for this country. We won't let them down. You know, and I appreciate you guys letting me talk about the books. Uh, again, I just want to help people. So Barnes & Noble and Amazon, Sunrise to the Darkness, as well as Immigrant American Survivor, Little Boy. Uh, grew up to be all three and you can follow me on my facebook uh will jimeno uh it's just my private page again i don't do any of this for a living guys i just just stuff that i'm doing now because at the end of the day i just want to go hunt <laughs> i hear you brother well it's a great way to keep uh not only yourself out of trouble and in a good place but it's a good way to reminisce and keep others memories alive so yes i i just want to say thank you again for joining us Thank you again for all the influence and impact you've had on the veteran community, the police community, the first responders, because I mean, if you can help one, that that's a win and you never yeah, know right. what that one will turn into. And so. I want to thank everybody out there that's serving our nation uh, in the military as first responders and uh, good parents. I want to say thank you to the good parents, the people that really take the time to be involved in their kids' lives because uh, being involved in your kids' lives is so crucial. So I want to thank everybody out there. I want to thank you guys for having me on here. I just want to say God bless America. Amen. I ain't even going to go any further than that. You said it for me. So thank you again for joining us. And uh, for everyone out there listening, thanks for taking the ride right here on the Outdoor Drive. Mm -hmm.